Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our online worship experience. We are so grateful that you decided to come and worship with us this morning, even if it is through this virtual format. We, this morning, are going to be concluding our Genesis series that we have been in for the past 10 weeks. And then at the end of this sermon, uh, I will introduce where we're going next, and it is a natural uh, jumping point uh, to go to. But for now, we are going to be settling in at the story of Abraham and hopefully wrapping up everything that we've been talking about over the past 10 weeks. Every night, Darren and I, we love to tuck our boys into bed, read them a bedtime story, and say a prayer with them. It's become a a very special family ritual for all of us, one that we all enjoy. But it never ceases to amaze me the difficulty that publishers of children Bibles have of capturing the deeply theological, sophisticated, sometimes overtly offensive biblical narrative into bite-sized, kid-friendly renderings. Now, I understand this is probably an isolated problem for me as a pastor. But for example, when you see images like this in your kid's Bible, now this is Mary, the the Virgin Mary, being uh, confronted by an angelic being. And in this version of Mary, they seem far too jubilant to be visited by an angelic figure who, in this story, is played by the young Billy Ray Cyrus only to tell her that her life is about to be radically changed at the age of 15, where she's going to carry and give birth to the Savior of the world that she and her people have been praying for for the last 2,000 years. And oh yeah, she's engaged to be married. So a lot of times our kids' Bibles, they get it wrong or they don't fully capture it, but sometimes they get it right. And in preparation for today's lesson, I found one of my boys' Bibles, a children's Bible, that handles the introduction to Abraham. And what I read was so extraordinarily written that I thought it was only befitting for me to read it to you. So this is going to come from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I'm going to read this, the introduction, the insert about Abraham. And then I'm going to say a prayer, but I don't want you to do what my boys do afterwards. I don't want you to fall asleep <laughs> after I read this to you. But we're going to read uh, this portion to you. It's, it's titled, The Sons of Laughter. <clears throat> Years passed and things didn't get any better. People were still just as cruel and mean to one another. They still got sick and died. And God's world was still filled with tears. It was never meant to be like this. But God was getting ready to do something about it. He was going to make all of the wrong things right. He was going to do it through a family. Abraham, God said, how many stars are there? Now, God was about to tell his friend a wonderful secret. Well, let me see, Abraham said, rolling up his sleeves. But have you ever tried counting the stars? Then you know how hard it is. 993, 994, 997. Oh, wait. No, okay. One, two. And of course, he kept losing count. Too many, he said. Guess what? God laughed. I will give you so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you won't even be able to count them. Abraham couldn't help but giggling at such a wonderful idea, but he stopped himself. I mean, how could he have a family? Don't be silly. He didn't have any children, let alone grandchildren. He wiped away a tear. 
Anyway, it was far too late for him to start having babies at this age. I mean, he was almost 99 years old. And what could God possibly mean? Abraham, God said, believe me. And then God told Abraham his secret rescue plan. Abraham, I will make your family very big, God promised, until one day your family will come to number more than even all of the stars in the sky. Abraham looked up at the dark night, thick with stars. You will be a special family, my people, and through you, everyone on earth will be blessed. It was an incredible promise, and one of his great, great, great grandchildren would be the child, the promised one, the rescuer. But it's too wonderful, Abraham said. How can it be true? Is anything too good to be true? God asked. Is anything too wonderful for me? So Abraham trusted what God said more than what his eyes could see, and he believed. Now, when Abraham's wife, Sarah, heard God's promise, she laughed to herself, but it wasn't a happy laugh. It had tears in it. Now, she wanted a baby, but could her dream really come true? Could she really have a baby when she was 90 years old? No, of course not. Don't be silly. It was, it was far too late. Sarah didn't believe God could do what he promised. She had forgotten that when God said something, it was as good as done. And of course, it was as easy for God to give her a baby's son as it was for him to make all of the stars in the sky. Sure enough, nine months later, just as God had promised, Sarah gave birth to a baby boy. They named him Isaac, which means son of laughter, and Sarah laughed. But this time, it was a glorious, happy laugh. Her dream had come true. God would do as he promised. He would always look after Abraham's family, his special people. And one day, God would send another baby, a baby promised to a girl who didn't even have a husband. But this baby would bring laughter to the whole world. This baby would be everybody's dream come true. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this moment that we have where we can worship you regardless of us being spread over all of Vero, all of Florida, all over our country, all over the world. But God, we are united in that baby that was born. That baby who was born to a virgin in a manger in the middle of nowhere 2,000 years ago who provides life and hope for us through all eternity. And God, we are grateful for the person named Abraham, who we are going to meet this morning, who believed you, maybe not at first, but eventually, even though it, all odds were against him, he believed and had faith in you. And God, we are grateful we get to learn what that faith means and what it looks like this morning. God, all we do and all we say and all we hear this morning, it is for your glory. We say this prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So throughout this 10-week series, we have seen how chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis have set up the basic storyline of the Bible. God has created all of creation. He has made human in his image, and he has appointed them to rule the world on his behalf. But humankind has chose to sin, has chosen rebellion. And so the world has entered a spiral 
spinning out of control into violence and death, eventually leading all the way to the rebellion and the scattering of the people of Babylon, which we talked about last week. And so the question we have reading this story is how is God and what is God going to do to redeem and rescue his good world? And well, after the scattering of Babylon, the author traces the genealogy of just one family that eventually leads to a man named Abram, later on known in the story as Abraham. And I want you to hear, in fact, I want you to read God's promise to that man. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. A whole movement in this story has just been opened. God calls his, calls his new faithful servant Abraham to leave his country, to leave his relatives, to leave his family house, to leave all his entire social web, which in the ancient world is like ancient life insurance. God calls Abram to leave his security, his framework of meaning, and to enter the land that God says he will show him. And when he does that, if Abram will, will obey that command, God is going to make his name great. Now, notice what God says there. I will make your name great. You don't have to go find it. You don't have to go and take it. I will do it for you. And this should be sending off bells in our mind. This is a hyperlink back to the very chapter that we just spent time in last week with Tracy of Babylon, who arrogantly tried to make a name for themselves. No, but in this story, God says, you failed. That didn't work out for you. No, I will be the one giving you. Through my great generosity, I will be giving a name to this no-name guy. And God's blessing to Abraham doesn't just harken back to uh, Babylon trying to make a name for themselves, but all the way back to the promises made in the garden to the first humans. So the question now becomes, why is God going to bless Abraham and his family? Like, why them? And the last line of God's promises makes that clear so that all families of the earth will find this blessing in you. And if you have your Bible open, you should be highlighting and circling and underlining all families. Like this is the key component to understanding the rest of the story. This is the key unlocking the rest of the narrative for us. God's plan is to rescue and bless his rebellious world through Abraham's family. And that's why the whole rest of the Old Testament is going to focus in on that one family. Eventually, they'll be called the nation of Israel. But it's why later on in the story, they're going to be labeled as the kingdom of priests on Mount Sinai. They're going to pick up that label. It's because God wants to use this nation of Israel to show the rest of the nations what he is like. Ultimately, this promise is going to be picked up by later prophets and poets, and they're going to be projecting it forward in the story, talking about a messianic kingdom and king who's in his reign is going to bring about justice and peace. And you can just see the line moving all the way to Jesus. However, At this point in the story, none of that is clear. No, instead, you have to keep reading in the story to watch how all of this is going to be 
revealed, how the promise is going to be developed. And that is a later sermon for a later time. Instead, today, we're going to focus in on Abraham. And I'm just going to give you the invitation to continue reading even after the series is done. Keep reading in this story. Watch how Abraham's story is going to be revealed and, and developed and how it's going to move on past him to Israel, to the nations, and then all the way to Jesus. But now we focus on Abraham. Why Abraham? Why does he matter? Why is he a big deal? Like why in the, in the Christianity faith and Judaism and Islam is he a central figure in their faith? Why, why do we who have grown up in Sunday school, have to sing that annoyingly catchy song about Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. You know, in many ways, Abraham wasn't special at all. In fact, it was his insignificance which made him so significant. You see, Abraham didn't do anything in history to make himself special. It wasn't anything he said. It wasn't anything he did. It wasn't anything he accomplished. Rather, it was what he believed. Listen to what Paul says about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul, an early Christian leader, says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. <laughs> Abraham was just a normal person, like you and me. He was flawed. He, he did, actually didn't have anything special about him. But when God showed up on his doorstep, and when God promised him greatness, Abraham believed him. Maybe not at first, mind you, but eventually he believed him. Abraham had faith. And that is what was counted to him as righteousness. So what comes to your mind whenever you think and you see that word righteous? For many of us, for many people, the image of moral perfection comes up or a strict obedience to a certain set of rules comes to mind. But this story about Abraham, it reveals a completely different definition to that word righteous. See, from Abraham's time to ours, God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for trust. Let's hear from Paul again and how he puts it. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since, I mean, come on, he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of his wife Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver from concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And I love this next part, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But get this, the words, it was counted to him. Folks, those were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. Abraham matters because it reminds us that God's promises aren't just for the perfect. 
It doesn't matter if you're a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're a screw-up. It doesn't matter if your life is a hot mess right now. I mean, all of our lives are a hot mess right now. And God loves you regardless and wants a relationship with you. Just like Abraham, all we have to bring to the table is faith. Darian and I, we enjoy hiking. Now, we haven't been able to do that much lately because, well, let's be honest, there's not many great hiking trails, mountainous hiking trails in this part of Florida, but whenever we get the opportunity, we we try to go and do it. And there's another member of my family who also enjoys hiking, my dog Grady. Now, granted, he enjoys uh, going about anywhere we're going as long as he can go with us, but the dog has scaled mountains, he has dove caves with us, and there's this one trip that I'll never forget. We were uh, climbing some mountains in southern Oklahoma, mountains in air quotes, (laughs) and we were doing a little uh, cave diving trail that we know, and Grady was along for the trip, and we were hiking out of the valley. We had just finished diving these, these caves. We're hiking out of the valley, and Grady is just pouncing around in front of us. It's one of the first trips he's gone on. And he's off in the distance, and I see him jump in a, to, around a bush, and he just freezes. And his legs, I can see, they, they've just gone stiff. And he doesn't yelp, he doesn't growl, he just like freezes, like he's paralyzed and he doesn't move. And it wasn't until I actually got to him that I realized why. The dog had jumped right on top of a cactus patch. And he had needles sticking out of his belly, out of all of his legs, I mean, everywhere. And as I was reflecting on this story <laughs> uh, and, and that dog's look that he gave me, I thought, you know, that's what faith looks like. Like it's, it's, you are imperfect. You have no way of saving yourselves. You got yourself into this mess and you need to rely on something or somebody outside of you to save you from this, this moment that you're in. And so I remember I, I picked Grady up. I don't know how I got around all the, the stickers, but I picked him up and his legs, they just stay stiff. Like he doesn't want to move. And we're tired from our trek. We're out in the sun. And for about 45 minutes, Darian is just pulling the biggest needles out. All the ones that, you know, the pain. We can't get them all, but we can get the big ones. And, and Grady just has this look. And he's looking at me the entire time like, just, just help me. I just, you know, I, I can't do it myself. And sometimes I wish I looked at God the same way my dog was looking at me that day. And if you have a loyal dog, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, I'm with you. Wherever you go, I trust you. You lead the way and I'll follow. There won't be any hesitations. And whenever I get myself in a mess, I fully trust that you are going to help me out of it. You are going to rescue me. You see, God is not looking for perfection from us. That boat's long sailed for all of us, folks. We've, we've missed that one. But for once in the story... What God desires for once in our story is for God to wholly trust in Him. Imagine your friend invites you to a party at his house. Now, by the time you arrive, there's already a bunch of people there. There's decorations all over, music's playing in the background, and you looked at the counter and it's filled with food and drinks, an abundance of it. I mean, there's enough food and drinks for everybody at this party. And when you're hosted by somebody that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You don't have to worry about yourself. You can just focus on other people. You can just enjoy life around you. Now, I want you to imagine 
arriving to this party, seeing the abundance of food and drinks and thinking to yourself, you know what? There isn't enough at this party for me and the people I came with. And so you gather a bunch of food in your arms and you cupboard yourself in the front office, closing yourself away from everybody else at the party. Now that idea is a pretty ridiculous thought. I get it. But the idea of an abundant party is the exact picture we get of the world that we find in the Bible. I mean, we're just reflecting on the very first lesson in this series. God's creation of the world is is his expression of gracious love. He is the host. We are the guest in his world of abundance and opportunity. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world, is it? Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus, he grew up in that kind of world, a world under the military occupation of Rome, a world where people were losing their family lands because of swindling governing parties, a world where people and families were acquiring debt and poverty simply because of their ethnicity. And yet Jesus would walk around that kind of world and he would say things like, well, look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, and yet they're not anxious about being provided for. You know what? You should live that way as well. (laughs) And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, Jesus, you've lost your mind. Like, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've experienced. But Jesus was not oblivious to the fact that things don't always work out. Jesus was born into poverty. He experienced it firsthand, and yet... He didn't view the world the way we view it. Rather, he viewed it the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claim that the scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, it's a problem in our mindset that God can't be trusted. And this is the problem humanity has been facing from the very beginning in the garden. We listen to that slithering voice. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough. Maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. Maybe I need to put more trust in something else, be it a political party or my career or my intuition or myself. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anybody else. And if you've watched any apocalyptic movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, we're living in a a sort of apocalypse over the past couple of months. And you can't tell me you haven't thought when the world flips upside down, when the government shuts down, when the world comes to an end, how am I going to take care of me and my own? How am I going to take care of my my family and myself? How are we going to eat? Where are we going to go? You know what that mindset leads to? It leads to envy and anger and violence and this idea that there isn't enough. The party is over. Battles begin. But God is determined for humans to experience his generosity. He loves his creation with an intensity that we could only hope to comprehend. And so God chooses one person and one family and one nation, the the family of Abraham, which we've already been introduced to this morning. And God promises to give that family the abundance that he hopes to one day give everybody else. And this family is the new hope for the world. And all they have to do is trust in God's generosity. But they're human. And they fail. 
However, despite their failure, God doesn't give up. God does something surprising, and it should be surprising, even for us today. And if you are sitting in your living room or sitting at a coffee shop or sitting on your bed listening to this lesson, and you think God has given up on you, if you think there's, there's no way God could forgive me for the things that I've done, for the track record I keep going back to, for the ways I keep messing up and rejecting him and rejecting his wisdom and denying him and trusting in myself, if you think you are the straw that broke the camel's back, that God has never given up on humanity up to this point, but with you, he's going to, you haven't been reading Genesis. You haven't been following this series. You haven't read what Jesus has already done for you. God deeply loves his humans. He fails to give up on humanity. And so he gives one last gift. Himself. Jesus, the host of the party, comes down and joins the ruined, spoiled party. And the way Jesus lives his life is completely upside down from what you might expect. And his mindset of abundance allows him to live sacrificially and generously, even towards his enemies. But living generously didn't mean life would go well for Jesus. In fact, he would be betrayed by the friends that he was protecting. He would suffer for living the kind of life that he lived and calling other people to live it. Jesus knew the reality of his life. He knew that we were hopelessly deceived by this lie that there isn't enough. We're deceived by this lie that God is holding out on me, which is why that lie needed to be defeated. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing when he gave his life. Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of God's love. God saying, I'm not holding out on you. In fact, I'm willing to give you everything. It's a love that can turn death to life. It's a love that can turn scarcity into abundance. Jesus comes to the broken party and he calls his followers to live as if the party has just begun. And he calls that the kingdom of God. And whenever you believe that there actually is enough, that generosity is able to pour out of you to everybody else around you with your time, with your money, with your attention. And next week, Tracy and I, we're going to begin a new series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that reveals the upside-down reality as if you were to believe there really is enough. And that sermon, Jesus offers us an understanding of what a blessed life is, a life that's pleasing to God both on the outside and on the inside. And what Jesus taught is completely counter to mainstream thinking, both then and now. But every lesson is brimming with God's wisdom and practical insight of how to live the blessed life. And in this rare sermon, Jesus is going to break open the heart of God so that common people like you and I can live a life that's pleasing to God and free of hypocrisy. And we're excited for next week to begin that journey. But to conclude this Genesis series and to lead us into that spectacular sermon from Jesus. I want to close with a prayer using the very first words Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. From Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12, we call them the Beatitudes, but it paints a mosaic picture of the type of human Jesus was. 
So will you go with me in prayer? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen.